0: They say it takes a village to raise a child. I'm Catherine Ryan, and here we draw on my conversations with experts on Nine to Noon to help you navigate family life. A helping hand for parents trying to help drama queen teens develop into well-adjusted young women – Our next guest is clinical psychologist Dr Sarah Hughes who has worked with hundreds of families with teenage girls. Using hypothetical scenarios based on real life examples and recent research into the adolescent brain Dr Hughes' book Skip the Drama offers strategies for parents dealing with challenging teenage daughters. Sarah isn't only interested in making parents' life easier she wants to help young women through the stresses of their teenage years. Sarah holds a doctorate Clinical psychology and a PhD in child and adolescent anxiety disorders, and she's with us from North Sydney. Sarah, thank you. Good morning. Why are focus particularly on girls? I'm not. I think they're quite an interesting <clears throat> population.
1: <laughs> I think it's a, an area that a lot of parents have a lot of challenges with. Um, and a lot of the parents that I work with were really struggling to be able to find resources that had really good sort of practical strategies. Um, and I think one of the reasons as well that I end up working with so many teenage girls is that, you know, while a lot of issues affect um, boys as well, a lot of issues, you know, anxiety, depression, um, increasing self harm, tends to have a greater influence on, on teenage girls girls than it
0: does boys. What are those areas that you find are prevalent in the young people that you work with and their families?
1: Yeah, sure. Look, I think that um, a lot of the issues that I work with in teenage girls are surrounding uh, disordered eating, body image. Um, anxiety disorders, mood, a lot of cutting and self-harm. Unfortunately, seems to be on the rise as well. Um, and then, in addition to that, I mean, once we usually kind of work to resolve those symptoms, there's also a lot of really uh, quite prevalent, common, just teenage issues as well. Whether it be things like um, trying to have a respectful relationship, curfews, amount of time spent on the phone, um, homework, personal responsibility—they all tend to come up as issues where parents and teens
0: Heads as well. Where shall we begin with some of the traits that are particularly common? In you terms be, of with teenage. Yeah, girls? we've got a whole list here. <laughs> when <laughs> your daughter's <laughs> selfish, when your daughter's a procrastinator, where 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 shall we begin?
1: Yeah, I think oh, I think the teenage selfishness tends to be a really common one um, that parents really struggle with. and um, I think a lot of parents find it really hard that their teens are quite self-focused and sort of don't generally think about the people around them, especially within the family environment. Um, and I think it's really hard because, on the, you know, in fairness to teenagers, um, their brains are still actually developing, um, especially their frontal lows, which are the parts of the brains that they really need to be able to actually have skills like empathy and perspective taking. Um, and so teens are kind of hardwired to be quite, um, uh, quite self-focused,
0: so it makes it quite difficult as well. It is, in fact, a a stage of development, isn't it? A a component of a stage of development. They've got so much going on, it makes sense in some ways, that they can't fully take on the responsibilities they will as adults. And so with that being a a reality, what is your advice for how to address it and and, and begin to help them uh, appropriately deal with others?
1: Absolutely. And I think that um, one of the things that parents can do is really look at how they're responding to things like selfish requests. I think that a lot of the time we can fall into the trap of sort of trying to teach teens new skills by sort of through, you know, long-winded lectures and giving them a stern talking to. Um, Unfortunately, it doesn't tend to be that effective with teens, um, mainly because they don't really listen. They sort of tune out. Um, and often what parents fall into the trouble of doing is sort of have, have these long, drawn-out conversations with teens, but then they end up caving into those selfish requests. So they might sort of, you know, rant and rave and kind of go into all the reasons why it's really inconvenient for them to, you know, give their teen a lift really last minute because she hasn't organised herself in advance. But then when they take her anyway, it actually inadvertently reinforces that selfish demand. Um, And so I think that a lot of the time we need to look at not just the verbal messages that we're giving to teens, but the, the messages that we're giving through our behavior as well. Because a lot of the time parents might, through their words, be trying to teach teens to be less selfish, but their actions are actually inadvertently reinforcing that selfish behavior.
0: What are the particular concerns that, that uh, can become a- alarming, I guess? And are you seeing more and more examples of anxieties that go beyond the norm and leading sometimes into into self-harm? How do you approach this?
1: Yeah, look, absolutely. I think that there's there's a lot of issues now that teens have to face that weren't really issues, um, you know, back when sort of we were teenagers. And I, I think the thing as well is that everything sort of intensified now through social media and things as well. Teens are sort of under pressure a lot of the time and, and, and really feel that pressure. And I think that kind of definitely contributes to the escalation in sort of anxiety disorders and depression and things like that. Um, and unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of experimentation happening with self-harm. And I think For parents, it can be really hard to understand that because when we're struggling to cope with something or we're feeling stressed, hurting ourselves certainly isn't the first thing that springs to mind. You know, we do things that are adaptive like go for a walk, go to the gym, maybe spend some time with friends Um, and teens are facing these really huge stresses but they also don't yet have the skills actually to be able to cope with these stresses and I think that's why they're turning to self-harm to cope. So one of the things that we can definitely be doing is really trying to teach teach skills for teens in terms of how they can adaptively cope um, to stress and uh, you know it's difficult to go into that in in detail to do it justice but there's certainly more practical strategies than that within the book as well.
0: Is this often a phase rather than something a parent should believe is is indicative of a lifelong concern? What is your experience with uh, w- w- with young people who have anxiety beyond the norm and possibly some behaviours accompanying that?
1: Yeah, certainly. And look, I think that with the, right, with the right kind of intervention, and that's not necessarily, you know, intervention with a clinical psychologist. It could be intervention from a parent or a school psychologist or just a trusted adult friend as well. But we can really kind of change the trajectory that teens are on in terms of whether they're going to develop lifelong issues or not. Um, <clears throat> but I think in terms of... In terms of, it's more about whether or not these issues are actually impacting a teen. So I'll often say to parents, whether or not your daughter diagnostically meets criteria for something is in some ways irrelevant in terms of if she's struggling with something, if it's impacting her life, then it's really worthwhile intervening now to be able to teach her the skills so that it doesn't actually develop into a disorder. Um, Because, yeah, learning those skills and helping teens to have that support can really change the course of where they're headed.
0: Some of the other matters that will be very common... Um, the drama queen um, uh, is is this, is this very very common uh, behaviour and how do you define it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that teenage girls in particular are quite known for being pretty dramatic and I I think it sort of stems back to this idea that they are really facing a lot of stresses and they don't yet have the skills to actually be able to cope with those stresses and so they have these huge explosive um, emotional meltdowns and small things that parents just think I don't even understand why this is such a big deal become these huge catastrophic events. Um, And I think there's hormones raging, there's lots of things going on, but it really does come back to as well. They just don't have the skills yet. So there's kind of this lag where, you know, they're being exposed to these stresses um, in before they've been able to have the chance to actually build these skills. And I think that's what leads to a lot of the drama
0: as well. How do you deal with it yourself? Presumably not by becoming the other actor on the stage.
1: No, yeah, I think that it—you know—it takes two people to argue. So I think that even if teens are trying to sort of engage and they're being quite dramatic, um, the best way to respond to that, even though it's probably the hardest way, but the best way to respond to that is to try to stay as neutral as possible. Um, as soon as we sort of enter into arguments or try to sort of respond with logic, that tends to only inflame the situation further. Um, so trying to sort of stay neutral, level headed, and giving minimal attention to really sort of dramatic behaviour is definitely a more effective approach.
0: Other very, very common areas of concern, of course, is when your daughter's at the age where she 's starting to go to parties and you are having to navigate the rules around that, and also how you are going I guess to um, educate her around around some of the um, the practical ways of keeping herself safe, having a good time but keeping herself safe. How do you approach those conversations?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think that one of the, you know, some of the biggest concerns for parents when their kids start going to parties are things like exposure to drugs and alcohol. Um, and I think it can be really hard because these are some of the first early decisions where teens are in charge of being able to make their own calls about this. Um, it's, it's not something that parents can necessarily control. And I think sometimes, uh, you know, completely understandably, but I think sometimes parents try to control the situation in terms of limiting exposure to parties and saying no to things. Um, but ultimately, that's not going to help teens to have the skills that they need to sort of manage themselves in these kinds of situations the older that they get Um, so definitely having conversations and trying to educate teens about the risks associated with things like alcohol and drugs and even even risks around sort of you know drink spiking and things like that Um, but helping teens to have the information that they need to make good decisions Um, and it may mean that you need to sort of have the right scaffolding in place whether that be you know reasonable curfews and things like that so there's not exposure for huge extended periods time where there's lots of opportunity to make poor decisions, um, but gradually kind of letting your teen have some of that freedom and to test their independence in a way that they're well informed to make their own decisions and then trusting that they're going to be able to do that.
0: The ways of speaking to young people, the ways of speaking that you have found to be effective and perhaps what parents often get most wrong, particularly with young women. Can you give advice?
1: Yeah, sure. Look, I think one of the things that uh, tends to be the biggest source of conflict actually um, is that, there's a big shift in parenting sort of from the age where kids are in primary school to when they're actually teenagers. Um, and in primary school, I think we're still more in that stage of, you know, you'll do as I say because I'm the parent, um, and it's more um, parents giving quite set directives. I think as teens enter into that um, more of the teenagers and they sort of start to have their own thoughts and opinions about things, they're really desperate to sort of have you acknowledge that. They really want to sort of be heard and feel like you're taking their concerns seriously. And so negotiation ends up being one of the biggest um, and most powerful strategies that's actually at parents' disposal. And so trying to approach conversations in a very similar way that if you were having conflict with a work colleague or you were having conflict in another adult relationship – You wouldn't approach that conversation by sort of dictating to the other, well, you might, but you wouldn't have a successful relationship, but you wouldn't want to dictate to the other person all the things that they need to do differently. You'd try to sort of put your ideas on the table. You'd listen to what the other person was saying. You'd try to concede points if you could, all in the the way of trying to resolve that conflict. And so I think it's a big, it is a big shift, but to be effective with teens and to have effective conversations, trying to approach them in the way that you do with your other adult relationships. And yes, there still has to be boundaries and you are still the parent, um, but where it's possible, if you are able to really sort of show teens the respect of listening and showing them that you're willing to take their ideas on board, it tends to sort of smooth the way for a much, much stronger relationship, um, which really helps with compliance in other areas as well.
0: The difference between moodiness, which is uh, again very prevalent in the age, and possible depression. Of course, people are always wanting to be ahead of serious problems, but sometimes can overread what's happening. How do you help guide people? Yeah,
1: sure. It's, it is a really tricky
0: one because I think that, you know, that sort of stereotypical teenage angst
1: um, can look very similar to depression. Typically what we would say is that it's more to do with, I guess, uh, duration as well. So if, if it is just a stage that a teen's going through and they're kind of a bit moody at home but they're still engaging in their normal activities, they're st- still spending time with friends, their sleep and their appetite, and, you know, they're still performing okay at school, um, that would be something that we would put more down to sort of just teenage angst and moodiness. Um, um, if it's something where their mood sort of it doesn't shift, it, it sort of, it's something that kind of hangs around for quite a long time. And on top of that, you also start to see other behavioural changes like problems with sleep, problems with concentration, withdrawing from those usual activities, not wanting to go to sports and things that they might usually enjoy. Um, when all of that starts to happen, then we would start to really consider something like a diagnosis of depression. And so it's really about looking for not just symptoms in isolation, like the fact that your teen's moody and might be having a bad couple of days for a bad few weeks, um, but more looking at sort of clusters of symptoms and when start things start to co-occur, that usually indicates an issue.
0: Sarah, thank you, Dr. Sarah Hughes, clinical psychologist. Her book is Skip the Drama: Practical Strategies to Survive Your Daughter's Teenage Years. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health
1: insurance. United Healthcare term medical plans are available for these changing times.